This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on the Near East, South Asia, Central Asia, and Counterterrorism will come to order. Today we're holding a hearing on the findings of the Bipartisan Syria Study Group. The Syria Study Group was established by Congress with the purpose of examining and making recommendations on U.S. military and diplomatic strategy with respect to the conflict in Syria. I want to recognize my colleagues, particularly Senator Shaheen and my friend, the late Senator John McCain, for their efforts to establish this working group. We also wish to honor the American men and women who have died as part of Operation Inherent Resolve, the campaign against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Finally, I want to thank our witnesses here today for their willingness to take up the task of examining an extremely complex problem with no easy solutions. As the report states, quote, optimal outcomes were left behind long ago, end of quote. It's never easy to devote time and resources to a task whose main goal is often to prevent worse things from happening. I happen to believe that this report comes at a very timely point in our nation's history. According to press reports, ISIS is regrouping, and that there are some uh, 15,000 ISIS uh, fighting uh, individuals on the ground, that there are some 70,000 in refugee camps that are uh, uh, ISIS supporters. Uh, Mr. Assad has uh, repeated chemical attacks, despite the fact that we once drew a red line. That red line seems to be more like a green light. Turkey is hostile to the um, intent towards the Kurd uh, individuals, the Kurd-led Syria Defense Forces, which we back and presents a real threat to, to them. Uh, Idlib uh, is uh, uh, apparently a province that's being held by various terrorist groups, including Al-Qaeda. Uh, Iran has 2,500 troops, which are located on the ground there. Russian mercenaries uh, have launched or did launch a surprise attack on U.S. troops there. Um, so there's a, a great deal of swirling around this, uh, this part of the world. Um, uh, we have, as a nation, the administration has announced its withdrawal, and I think one of the questions is whether uh, this is a, a political interest that's being pursued or, or a national interest that's being pursued, and particularly the, uh, the recommendations that are going to come forward from this, uh, this group are of most interest to, to me and I'm sure other members of the committee and the administration. Your report uh, does include conclusive, thoughtful recommendations. Uh, to address these challenges and how best to adjust our strategy towards Syria to minimize the threats in the future. And I look forward to hearing more of your thoughts today. And with that, I'll turn the time over to Senator Murphy for his comments and questions. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for joining us here today. The uh, civil war in Syria has now raged on for more than eight years. Huge swaths of the country are decimated. Millions have been displaced. Uh, though the crisis may have faded from the headlines, it's in part due to the fact that the international community has just accepted these tragic events as the new normal. Syria is now where international law and the rules of war have gone to die. War crimes once considered unthinkable and outrageous, the bombing of hospitals, chemical weapons attacks are now commonplace. The administration has declared three goals of our U.S. policy there, the defeat of ISIS, a political settlement, uh, and then the withdrawal of Iranian commanded forces. But at the same time uh, that we supposedly want to accomplish these big goals, the administration has cut stabilization aid to Syria, pulled out non-military officials such as Start Forward, largely been MIA on negotiations uh, in Geneva, uh, and sought to push off the Syria file on our partners rather than, than lead. Uh, and I think it's an incredibly important time for us to consider uh, this uh, very, very 
um, well-timed report. Um, I also think it's time for us to admit that our policy in Syria over the course of two administrations has been a failure, and we need to do some post-mortem about the overall lessons learned. Uh, it's clear that our policy has failed, and despite the Obama administration's significant covert military support for forces opposing Assad, the war has continued to rage for over eight years. Our decision to provide the rebels with enough support to keep going, but not enough to actually defeat Assad, served to drag this war out and kill thousands more innocent people than had we limited our involvement at the outset. Now, some will argue that our mistake was not intervening sooner, which would have kept Russia and Iran out of the Syrian theater, forced Assad to step down, and allowed for a political process to move forward. It would be nice to think that U.S. military inventions could accomplish these worthy objectives. Unfortunately, Mr. Chairman, history provides scant examples of where the U.S. directly intervened in a foreign civil war and achieved its policy goals. These types of interventions always sound good on paper, but often end up getting us bogged down into a quagmire as they confront the messy reality of insurgencies, imperfect partners, unreliable intelligence, and unintended consequences. Sometimes military restraint, though it may feel unsavory in the face of evil, it's sometimes the best policy if our action will ultimately create new problems than it solves. I hope we're able to talk about uh, these broader realities as well as the path forward inside Syria itself. We have a lot to discuss today, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, we have one panel with two witnesses here today. Michael Singh, co-chair of the Syria Study Group, is the Langswig Senior Fellow and Managing Director for the Washington Institute. He's a former Senior Director for Middle East Affairs at the National Security Council. Previously, he served on the Task Force on Extremism in Fragile States. We also have Dana Stroll, co-chair of the Syria Study Group and a senior fellow at the Washington Institute's Beth and David J. Duld Program on Arab Politics. She previously served for five years as a senior professional staff member for this committee and spent five years working in the office of the Secretary of Defense. We will now turn to our first witness, Mr. Singh. Thank you for your willingness to testify here today. Your full statement will be included in the record without objection. If you could please keep your remarks to no more than five minutes, we would appreciate it so that we can engage with some questions after that. Mr. Singh. Well, thank you, Chairman Romney, uh, Ranking Member Murphy, and members of the committee. I appreciate this opportunity to present the final report of the congressionally mandated Syria Study Group. Uh, it was a real honor to co-chair this bipartisan group of experts along with my colleague, Dana Struhl. I want to begin by talking about why policymakers and the American public should care uh, about Syria and about this conflict. Uh, it's not something our group took for granted, especially in a day and age when all of us face mounting questions, and maybe for good reasons, uh, frankly, about the U.S. role in the world. Uh, then I'm going to defer to Ms. Struhl to discuss the study group's assessments uh, and recommendations. To understand U.S. policy towards Syria, I think it's important to reach back to the beginning of the conflict in 2011. It began as a peaceful uprising against an autocratic dictator one of many such uprisings at the time that made up the so-called Arab Spring, uh, as everyone here will remember. Um, and if it seemed eight years ago that this uprising might usher in some positive change, those hopes have been dashed, to say the least. Syria has turned into a crucible for a complex series of intersecting conflicts that has reverberated, I would argue, well beyond the Middle East, um, to Europe, to the United States, and elsewhere. For years, as uh, Senator Murphy alluded to, the United States hoped to shelter ourselves 
from the fallout of the Syrian conflict. Uh, many of you will remember the notion that was once popular that Syria could be cauterized, quote unquote, that its effects would, could be confined to Syria itself and that the rest of the region of the world could be spared uh, from the fallout from the conflict. But what happened in Syria didn't stay in Syria, nor could the war's effects be easily contained. So in April 2013, ISIS moved from Iraq into Syria, eventually established its capital in Raqqa. In August of 2013, regime forces killed hundreds of innocent people in a chemical weapons attack in the suburbs of Damascus. In August and September of 2014, American journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff were brutally executed by ISIS. And in September of 2015, the Russian military intervention in Syria began, and obviously that persists till today. Along the way, nearly 7 million Syrians were driven to neighboring countries or the shores of Europe as refugees. Today, Syria poses a spectrum of threats to American interests, I'd argue. It provides safe haven to some of the world's most dangerous terrorist groups. Idlib, for example, is home to the greatest concentration of foreign fighters since Afghanistan in the 1980s, U.S. officials have said. ISIS has been driven from the territories it once controlled, but it's returning now as an insurgency, as you said, Senator Romney. Iran has exploited the conflict to entrench itself in Syria's economic and social fabric and would have turned Syria into a forward base for its missiles were it not for Israeli airstrikes. But those strikes by Israel have come with a cost in the increased risk of war between Iran and Israel, and we've seen that conflict between the two spread in recent months elsewhere in the region. Russia, too, has exploited this conflict through its intervention in Syria. Moscow has established itself, brutally and cynically, as a major player in the Middle East for the first time in decades. U.S. partners across the region are taking Russia's new role seriously, uh, we would judge, and have expanded their ties with Moscow across the board. The list goes on. The Assad regime and its partners have smashed every norm uh, of conflict by targeting hospitals and schools, deploying chemical weapons uh, and barrel bombs, and using starvation and mass murder as weapons of war. Syrian refugees have roiled politics uh, in Europe and strained economies throughout the Levant and beyond. At every point at which we hope to shelter ourselves from this conflict's ill effects, it has only become more deleterious to our interests. And it could yet grow worse. We could see a massacre and a new exodus of refugees in Idlib, where you have three million people holed up uh, with forces on every side. You could see a new incursion by Turkey that brings it into conflict with our Arab and Kurdish allies. You could see a broader war between Iran and Israel. Um, or you could see a renewed civil war in the areas where the regime has retaken control, but that control is very tenuous, frankly. The conflict in Syria matters to America, whatever one's preferred strategic framework, I'd argue. This is a conflict where our two great strategic concerns, international terrorism on the one hand, great rival, I'm sorry, great power conflict on the other, come together. It's not a conflict we can simply contain or ignore. Um, our group was unanimous in that judgment. But we were also unanimous in our view that there remains much that we can do as the United States to help shape the conflict's outcome and protect our interests, which uh, Ms. Truel will go into in more detail. I do want to take the few seconds that remain to me just to say thank you um, first to Senator Shaheen for her leadership in uh, creating this group, um, to Congressman Thornberry uh, on the House Armed Services Committee for appointing me, uh, and to the Republican Caucus for the honor of being named co-chair of the group. Um, thank you to the congressional leadership for naming, frankly, such thoughtful uh, and expert colleagues to the Serious Study Group. Um, and I want to echo, Senator Romney, your thanks to all those Americans, civilian and military, uh, who have fought, and especially those who have died uh, in the course of what I think is an important conflict. To me, the real value of this report, just to conclude, is that it represents a bipartisan consensus. Uh, and to me, in Washington today, that's no small thing. Thank you.
Thank you, Mr. Singh. Uh, Ms. Struhl. Chairman Romney, Ranking Member Murphy, and members of the committee, thank you for inviting us to present the final report of the Serious Study Group. Last year, Congress directed the Serious Study Group to form an assessment of the military and political status of the Syrian war and provide recommendations for the way ahead. Today, we are delivering a document that represents the consensus of all 12 members and echoing Mr. Singh that is no small feat. This is a bipartisan plan for action. Here are our top line conclusions. Number one, Assad has not won the war. Areas under his control are riddled with crime and poverty. Civilians are subject to conscription, forced disappearances and execution. Conditions are set for the next phase of conflict. Two, the political process is stalled. Yesterday's announcement on the formation of a constitutional committee may hold promise, but it is too soon to tell. To date, Assad has not demonstrated willingness to make meaningful compromises. His offensive in Idlib makes it painfully difficult to build momentum toward a negotiated settlement. Three, ISIS is not defeated. The US-led military effort successfully pushed ISIS out of the territory it held, but the group has transitioned to an insurgency. Meanwhile, Al-Qaeda is still active in Syria. Four, the ISIS detainee population is a few prison breaks away from reconstituting the next caliphate. The US-supported Syrian Democratic Forces are resource-strained in securing this population. Five, Iranian boots are not leaving Syria despite U.S. sanctions and Israeli strikes. In addition to its military campaign, Iran is entrenching itself in Syria's economic and social fabric for long-term influence. Six, Russia has exploited its intervention on behalf of Assad to contest U.S. influence and leadership. Seven, U.S.-Turkey ties are immensely strained and U.S. support for the Syrian Defense Forces is a leading factor. A Turkish military incursion into northern Syria will provide ISIS the opportunity to reconstitute. Joint U.S.-Turkey military patrols in a mutually agreed upon area prevent this scenario for the time being. Eight, the scale and scope of human suffering over the course of this conflict have set a depraved new standard for the 21st century. The parties responsible, Assad, Iran and Russia have faced no meaningful consequences for the use of chemical weapons and barrel bombs, torture, starvation, and intentional targeting of civilian infrastructure. Informing our recommendations, our group considered the limited appetite of the American public for significant increases in military or financial investments. Therefore, we propose a strategy that strengthens key elements of the current approach calls for reinvigorated U.S. leadership and prioritizes resolving the underlying Syrian conflict. The tools for this strategy are already on the table. A U.S.-led international coalition against ISIS, limited U.S. forces on the ground, capable local partner forces, sanctions, assistance, and diplomacy. But effective and appropriate resourcing of these tools are needed to give them teeth. To start, we recommend the following steps reverse the U.S. military withdrawal from northeastern Syria, strengthen U.S. sanctions on Assad and his backers and make them multilateral, lead ongoing diplomatic isolation of the Assad regime, spend the $200 million in U.S. stabilization funds already approved by Congress, continue to withhold reconstruction aids to the parts of Syria under Assad's control,
Concurrently, the U.S. must continue to provide humanitarian assistance to Syrians inside and outside of Syria while shoring up vulnerable refugee hosting partners and host communities on Syria's borders. Our group acknowledges that this strategy will not lead overnight to the elimination of ISIS, the removal of Iran from Syria, or a political settlement that ends the war. But this mix of tools, combined with consistent high-level and credible American leadership, will provide leverage to shape an outcome protective of core U.S. national security interests when conditions are conducive for a negotiated settlement. This is the end state for Syria envisioned by our group, a Syrian government viewed as legitimate by its population, capable of ending dependence on foreign forces and able to eliminate the threat from terrorist groups. Syrian citizens would therefore need to not fear the Assad regime, Russia, Iran, or ISIS. Such an end state, in our view, will require an updated political and social compact in Syria. To conclude, just a few thank yous. The work of the Syria study group would not have been possible without the support of Congress, and in particular, Senator Shaheen. The 12 members of Congress who named members to the group put together a panel of deep expertise and committed colleagues, thank you. My personal thanks to Senator Schumer for appointing me and to the Democratic Caucus for making me the Democratic co-chair. The USIP team facilitating our group has been nothing short of tremendous. In particular, thank you to Executive Director Mona Yakubian and her team. And finally, my personal thanks to my fellow co-chair, Mike Singh. He has been a partner as well as, as friend as I balanced my role in this group and welcomed my second child about 12 hours after our first set of meetings. The child was extremely timely and I thank him for that as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, uh, both of your uh, comments today. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions, and uh, and then we'll turn to the ranking member, and then Senator Shaheen. Um, uh, you mentioned briefly what the end uh, view might look like, and I'd love to have you elaborate on that. Uh, if uh, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And uh, I'm not sure we have a sense of uh, of where we are headed where what we hope to have done, what success would look like, and perhaps there's near-term success and longer-term success, but what, what do you think is a realistic objective for, uh, for our involvement in Syria? Because Mr. Singh, for instance, described the kinds of things that might happen, some calamitous uh, outcomes. What, are, what is the positive outcome that we, and a realistic positive outcome, that our involvement in in Syria should be aimed to achieve, and and you either one of you can can take and both can comment on that if you'd like. Thank you for that question, Senator. So first, we should highlight what we are not saying is a realistic outcome at this point in time. What we are not saying is that the removal of Assad as as and his regime in Damascus is a realistic objective for U.S. policy at this point in time. So what we are doing is calling not for removal of Assad, but for meaningful changes in regime behavior as a way to address the underlying causes of conflict. The history of Bashar al-Assad in Syria is collaboration and co-optation with Al-Qaeda. We know that he has used extremists, including ISIS, released them from his prisons when it suited his purposes, and in the past deployed them against U.S. forces in Iraq. Um, so that is number one. And number two, what we are talking about in terms of defeating ISIS is enabling the post-ISIS communities in North and Eastern Syria the time and space to demonstrate an alternative model of governance to the Assad regime. So some of the clear changes that the Assad regime could implement that would suggest that he was open to meaningful concessions 
ending forced conscription, revising property laws so that all Syrians would, would have access to real estate and to rebuild their lives and livelihoods in Syria, obviously to end arbitrary detentions, torture, release political detainees, and to engage in a meaningful way in the UN-facilitated political process. I would just add to that, Senator, that you know I think the only party in this conflict that has a clear vision for how uh, they see it ending is Bashar al-Assad. He, he believes that he can reconquer all of Syria. Uh, I don't think that um, an independent analyst would say that he has the ability to do that, even with Russia and Iran's help, especially not while uh, U.S. forces and our partners are there on the ground. Um, so the question, I think, is how do you persuade him uh, and those backing him that that is not a realistic option for them and that they have to accept compromise? Because right now, um, it doesn't seem that President Assad is willing to brook any kind of compromise when it comes to um, retaking Syria and sort of reestablishing his absolute rule. And so um, the U.S. strategy, as we can see it now, is aimed at trying to put pressure on him to get him to accept that reform is needed. Um, my, my own view, I think the view of the group, is that that is the right strategy, but it's going to take more concerted uh, efforts and leadership by the United States. As long as there's a question, for example, as to whether we're really committed to doing this, whether we're really committed to maintaining, for example, our military presence, even though it's quite small in Syria, I think that may give him the belief that he can wait us out. Uh, is your view that there will, that, that there, our objective should be, or the realistic objective is that there would be a, a unified Syria with, uh, with representation of various groups and minorities and so forth, some kind of a, a coalition, a government of kinds, of, of sorts, or is it your view that, that there need to be, if you will, two parts of Syria, one part held by one group of people, one part held by the other? Well, I'd say ultimately, Senator, what we would hope is that that choice would be left to the Syrian people themselves rather than something that's imposed you know, by us or by the international community. I, I think that um, what we need to do, and this is sort of the, the broad strategy that the report lays out, is to have a strategy in place which aims at bringing Syria back together with a reformed government, maybe a decentralized system of government. So for example, our um, Kurdish and Arab allies in the Northeast would have a greater say uh, in how they're governed. Um, but that we also need to be postured in a way that allows us to protect our interests and keep and consolidate our gains, even if that kind of settlement proves elusive. That, that is sort of how we think the strategy needs to be pitched uh, when it comes to this question. Thank you. Uh, let me turn to Senator Murphy for his questions. Uh, thank you both for all your work on this. Thanks to Senator Shaheen for uh, instigating it. Um, so it seems as if over the course of U.S. policy with respect to Syria, we've had two overarching goals. One is, of course, to end the fighting. Uh, this is a war that has absolutely decimated the nation and the families that live there. Uh, and second, to delegitimize Assad. At one point, our uh, stated goal was his removal. Uh, today, I think you reflect a consensus within the administration that that may be unrealistic, but that we, uh, uh, but, but legitimizing him comes with great risk given the abhorrent behavior that he is engaged in. Um, those two goals, to me, seem mutually exclusive. And my worry is that the recommendations that you are making to us are just an invitation for the status quo to persist for years and years and years. If you accept that Assad is hanging around, um, then I'm not sure why uh, a limited U.S. military presence, a relatively slight uptick in humanitarian focus and diplomatic engagement 
is going to correct for his behavior, given that his patrons, who are going to stick with him through thick and thin, are making no such um, demands on him. And in the foreseeable future, it doesn't appear as if we are going to have the ability to change Russia and Iran's mind. I've heard before this panel over and over and over again that Putin doesn't really care about Assad, that ultimately he'll get him to do the right thing. Um, that has never proved to be the case. Um, and so address my worry that your report is just a slight variation on U.S. policy, that there is no real pressure point in your proposals that will change Assad's behavior. And in the end, we are faced with a decision. We either apply enough pressure uh, to overtake the Assad regime, or we accept that Assad is going to control this country and we pursue a policy um, to make the inevitable happen sooner rather than later to preserve the lives of thousands of people who will lose them uh, if this just drags on and on. Thank you, Senator, for that question. So the first thing that we asked ourselves the same questions about the policy. So first of all, in advocating for continuing the military presence in northeastern Syria, we see this as a decisive form of leverage, if not right this minute, down the line. Because northeastern Syria, which we hold through the SDF, is resource risk rich, both from hydrocarbons and agriculture. And number two, another factor to consider here is what are Russia's objectives? And Russia's objectives, as we understand them in our very wide consultations, is not the status quo, but actually to legitimize Assad and rehabilitate and reintegrate him into the international community and to demonstrate to the international community that Syria is normalized by refugee returns and economic recovery. None of that can happen with the current US tools on the table. Most Governments are not returning embassies to Damascus given the status quo. Most that would engage in reconstruction contracts in Syria are not going to do that for threat of U.S. sanctions. Russia knows that they need reconstruction assistance and aid that comes not just from the United States bilaterally, but from European governments, from international financial institutions, all of which at this point in time are following the U.S. lead and holding the line on those issues. So what we are saying is over the time horizon, at this point in time, unlikely to change Assad's calculus, but does Russia tire of him and his regime and its current behavior at some point when it wants to be done, when Putin wants to be done with the current state of play in Syria? Perhaps. And we also consider the alternative, which is if we, we that, that the withdrawal of U.S. forces or just allowing, acknowledging that he's going to stay and not insisting through our non-military tools on regime behavior change, will that actually save lives? And our conclusion was no, it will not. If U.S. forces leave northeastern Syria, we, we think Assad will go in with his security forces, with Russia and Iran, so we'd have another Idlib-type situation on the local partners have fought and bled and died in the counter-ISIS fight with us. And number two, all of the Syrians living under his control right now also are not looking to him as a legitimate form of government. I'm going to give the rest of the time to Mike. I'd, I'd just say, Senator, I, wanna, I would agree with one of your premises but challenge another, which is to say, I think you're right that the Syria study group did not look at the administration's strategy and say, this is a fundamentally flawed strategy. We need a new one. Um, we looked at the alternatives, things like let's just throw up our hands and leave, um, let's accept Assad somehow and kind of just, you know, um, re-engage with him and accept that he's there to stay. And we found them wanting. We found them worse than the strategy that we're pursuing. What we did say about the strategy, though, is that, number one, it's hampered 
by our own seeming kind of hesitation about it. You know, this kind of, these sharp reversals and twists and turns where, you know, today we're withdrawing, now we're back and so forth. That has led other countries, which actually also support the strategy. You know, what we heard from Europeans, from our allies in the region was they also think it's the right strategy. They just wonder if we're committed to it. That's a problem. Second was the sort of matching of ends and means. You know, if we have these goals to, say, keep ISIS from returning in northeastern Syria, we got to spend the stabilization money. Where I would challenge your premise, Senator, though, is that I don't think our goal is to delegitimize Assad per se. I think Assad has delegitimized himself. We didn't take any territory from Assad. He lost it to his own citizens in many cases, uh, or, it was take, or it was lost because he couldn't govern it legitimately. I, I, I think I, what we're doing is we're saying to Russia, to Assad, and so forth, they want us to recognize his legitimacy, and we're saying here are the conditions we, the not just the United States, but the United States and our allies elsewhere, is under which we would be willing to do that. Yeah, that, that, that maybe is not put well. I think our, our purpose is, is not to be seen as endorsing um, the illegitimate actions that he has taken. Um, my, my only quick comment is that I agree that both of the alternatives, uh, withdrawal or engagement, are unsavory. Uh, I just worry that we will be back here with another study group report um, recommending another slight variation on U.S. policy after thousands more have died. And to Ms. Struhl's point about Russia, again, I've heard this, this before, that Russia um, wants to engage, wants to legitimize, uh, wants, to, wants to allow for Syria to re-enter the global community. I think their, their actions in Venezuela, in Ukraine, and in Syria speak more likely to their goal of constant chaos than the reintegration of their partners into the world community. And I, I, I worry that uh, this may be a misread of their intentions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Well, first of all, thank you both very much. Thank you for your great work as part of the study committee and for the leadership that you've provided after. It took a very long time to get um, the report underway, so it's very satisfying to see the actual product and to hear you all talk about the recommendations in the report. Um, one of those recommendations I'm pleased to see we are hopefully in the process of um, actually accomplishing. There is language in the Defense Authorization Bill for a, Syria, or for a an ISIS detainee coordinator um, which is something that is recommended in the report. So hopefully that will get through without any trouble, and um, I think it is sorely needed. Last year, when Senator Graham and I visited we, Syria, we went to several ISIS detention facilities in Hasaka, Ayanisa, and Manbij. And actually it was Kobani, not Manbij. And at that time, there were an estimated between 500 and 1,000 foreign fighters in those camps. Um, today, the numbers jumped to over 2,000. 2, and that doesn't include all of those folks who are in detainee camps, the largest one close to the Iraqi border. I was in Iraq in April, and they are very concerned about what happens in that camp with um, not just with any fighters who may be in the camp, but with all of the women um, and children who are being radicalized. So what happens with those detainees is a huge concern. And um, what we've heard from the Syrian Democratic Forces is that they don't have the will or the resources to continue to take ownership of the detainee facilities. So can you speak to what happens 
if the international community continues to refuse to repatriate the foreign fighters that have come um, from the West and um, what the potential consequences of that are? Either one of you or both? Thank you so much for that question. Uh, one, one, the, the issue of ISIS detainees was exceptionally alarming across the board to all members of the group, and we explicitly dedicated a significant part of the report to, to raise the alarm on this issue. You asked a question, Senator, about the 2,000 foreign fighters, and if they are not repatriated, there, there are two options. They either stay to fight another day in Syria or they go to another theater of war to fight another day there. Those are the two options. The Syrian Democratic Forces uh, not only lack the will, but they lack the capability. They have never dealt with a challenge like this before. We are providing some technical assistance. Right. So, so the bottom line is this is a, a threat that is only gonna get worse. There is no possibility that they stay indefinitely in supermax-like facilities in northeastern Syria, especially given the uncertainty about the U.S. military commitment going forward and, and, and whether or not the SDF will stay together and, and committed to protecting these facilities. And I would just like to add, since you raised this, the Al-Hol IDP camp, is, is family members of ISIS detainees, and that still doesn't count the tens of thousands of Iraqi and Syrian ISIS fighters right. in other pop-up facilities all over northeastern Syria under SDF control. They don't have proper facilities. Often these are repurposed schools or other civilian structures. Populations are being mixed. Uh, the situation when some of these fighters are repatriated to Iraq is not, not positive. Human Rights Watch has done incredible work on what happens when they go back to Iraq. And in Syria also, it is just uh, regenerating this issue for another day if we don't have a consolidated and internationalized strategy now. And let me just, before you continue, Mr. Singh, let me just point out that um, at least when we were in Iraq earlier this year, the Iraqis were not anxious to take back those Iraqis who are being held in the camps because of all of the problems that they bring with them. So, Senator, I think that's, that's a very important point, and it sort of gets to what I think is a larger issue. I mean, I served in the George W. Bush administration, and I don't think anyone wants to see a repeat of the Guantanamo experience. We all had, obviously, a very difficult time uh, with that issue. But the fact is, I, I feel as though we do keep uh, running up against this type of issue. Um, where we have these detainee populations, um, we know that we are sort of, you know, that dangerous people are under detention, but our options for prosecuting them, repatriating them are limited and we're approaching it in an ad hoc way. I'll just say that I think this issue requires a sort of broader look, not just by the United States, but by the United States and our allies, because we have, despite having dealt with it now since really 9-11, we don't really have good solutions to it, I would say. The other thing we don't have good solutions to, just very briefly, is this question of de-radicalization. Um, you have these 70,000 um, uh, mostly women and children, mostly children, frankly, in the all-whole camp, um, who have grown up in the worst possible conditions. And the fact is that we don't really know how to um, conduct this process of de-radicalization. And that's, I think, again, something that, is, that behooves us to get on top of. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Kane. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you for this uh, report. Very important topic. I, I want to ask you a question about um, a recommendation that's contained at page 47. One of the recommendations deals with trying to reduce uh, an Iranian influence in Syria and eventually expel in phases Iranian influence in Syria. And you have a 
recommendation. More specifically, the United States should continue to support Israeli strikes on Iranian assets inside Syria. Uh, talk to, explain that phrase. So talk to me about what you guys know about uh, U.S. participation in Israeli strikes in Syria and what you mean by the recommendation that we continue to support those. Thank you, Senator. Um, so yes, look, the, the Israelis believe, and I think that we agree, having sort of uh, gotten some briefings from them, that these strikes have been pretty important in limiting Iran's activities inside Syria. And, and describe the strikes, because we've not had any testimony in this committee or the Armed Services Committee about U.S. participation in Israeli strikes in Syria. This is not a classified report, and I'm just curious as to describing what you know about those strikes. Right, and all I can tell you is what I know from, from open sources, Senator, because we weren't privy to any classified information. I should say that from the outset. Um, but it's been pretty clear that the Israelis have focused on striking systems, trying to prevent the Iranians from um, creating a sort of uh, missile network inside Syria that would allow them to create what they, the Israelis would consider a second or third even missile-to-missile, surface-to-surface rather, front against them from Iran. Um, when it comes to U.S. support, Senator, I think what we mean there is more diplomatic support, political support. I don't know of any actual, what, what any kind of technical or military support um, we may have or may have not provided. But I think the idea that, you know, we are not asking the Israelis, for example, to back off their coordination with Russia, we're not asking them to back off these strikes, um, because we see these as, frankly, probably the only way so far that Iran has been successfully deterred uh, in Syria. I think sanctions can play a role. I think political pressure can play a role. But there's, it seems to me that Iran is pretty determined to entrench itself uh, as deeply as it can in Syria, not just Syria, of course, also uh, throughout the region in Lebanon and Iraq and elsewhere. So other than public source information, you have not been briefed on U.S. support, military support for the strikes that you referenced? We, we have not, so, Senator. No. Um, let me ask you about the uh, humanitarian situation, the horrible humanitarian situation in Idlib. Uh, we have from this committee a bill that's pending on the Senate floor, the uh, Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act, that I hope, and it's bipartisan and it's strongly supported by the committee, I hope we might move to, to uh, act on it within the Senate. But what, what additionally might we do in Congress to deal with the humanitarian crisis in Idlib and try to uh, ease civilian suffering? Thank you for that question, Senator. So first of all, just a, a note on, on the Caesar bill. This, this bill is incredibly important to the Syrian and Syrian-American community who are invested in U.S. leadership on, this, on, on the issue of Syria. And, and what the Caesar bill does that's different from the existing laid-down architecture of sanctions is it would impose secondary sanctions on those that back the backers of the Assad regime. So we're getting at those who knowingly assist Iran, Russia, Russian mercenaries like Wagner, Iranian militias, et cetera, those who may be considering investing in um, Syrian telecommunications, reconstruction, et cetera, if that bill passes, it sends a, a signal to all of that secondary and tertiary community to not engage, and it again holds the line against normalizing, rehabilitating, or legitimizing Assad and his regime or his backers. And in terms of the humanitarian um, situation in Idlib, Number one, um, our report calls for stepped-up diplomatic pressure and leadership. Um, clearly, through the Astana process or through Russian-Turkish negotiations, there has been no pressure on Assad uh, compelling enough for him to stop his offensive. 
Um, there are 3 million civilians uh, plus a dog's breakfast of, of terrorist groups in Idlib. The consequences of continued offensive or a decision to take the entire province would be a new humanitarian ca catastrophe. Our report also talks about the reliable and credible threat of military force, not unilaterally, but in, in partnership with allies and partners if the assault on civilians and civilian infrastructure continues. I would, just, I would just add to that, Senator, that it seems to me that we face a situation where should the uh, Assad regime and the Russians press their attack on Idlib, um, you could have a new exodus of refugees. I'm not sure that those NGOs and aid organizations that are there across the border in Turkey or in Idlib are um, sufficiently funded or positioned to handle that. Uh, I, I think that that's going to require more funding from the international community. I think it's going to require some pressure on the Turks to let people through, not just the Turkish border, but there's also that Turkish-controlled region of Syria next to the Idlib province. Um, and that's something where I think Congress can play a role. And then finally, as we pressure countries like Turkey, which have taken a huge burden uh, of refugees, I think we have to do our part as well here in the United States. And I'm pretty concerned at reports that next year's refugee admissions might be even lower than this year's refugee admissions. I think that's something that's just in our national interest to reverse. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Um, we have time, I think, for another round of questions. The real chairman uh, has, of the uh, entire Foreign Relations Committee has arrived, uh, but he wants to listen in for a while before he might ask any questions, or just to make sure I don't totally mess up. So uh, I'll, I'll uh, begin with uh, a, a, another round here uh, on my own. Uh, first of all, uh, you, you speak about ISIS regrouping, uh, about the 70,000 or so that are in camps that are being uh, radicalized. I sometimes wonder why they're successful in radicalizing and we're not successful in normalizing, hmm. and, and why we don't have the capacity, uh, apparently, uh, to take a group of young people and parents and so forth and help them decide to become uh, uh, more accepting of others, uh, more willing to, to uh, uh, provide freedoms to, uh, to their fellow uh, individuals. Um, but, uh, but my question is whether you have perspectives on, on how we can, uh, if you will, uh, help prevent ISIS from regrouping, as you suggested, and reestablishing itself, uh, not necessarily based upon territory, but reestablishing itself as a, as a uh, uh, weapon against uh, the United States, against our citizens, against our friends around the world. What, what can we do? What should we be doing differently that we're not doing uh, to, uh, to combat the, uh, the reemergence of ISIS? Well, Senator, I think there's a few things we can do. And, and there's, I should say that there's an Iraq part to this answer, which maybe I'll leave aside since we're the serious study group. But it is important to note that I think for ISIS's purposes, ISIS considers Iraq and Syria sort of part of one contiguous theater of operations. And so what happens in Anbar, what happens in Iraq, and what the Iraqi government does is also important. And I think that's something that uh, this committee will need to pay attention to. Um, inside Syria itself, I, I would point to, let's say, three things that we need to perhaps do better than we have or, or keep doing uh, and make sure we don't stop. One is just keeping up the counterterrorism pressure on ISIS using U.S. forces. And so that requires maintaining a military presence that can also then serve as an enabling presence for the air campaign, which we've been carrying out. If that pressure eases, every military briefer, every, counter, every sort of CT briefer who spoke to us say that will give new life to ISIS. And so we need to keep that pressure on, keep the military presence. Second, um, I think stability in northeastern Syria, stabilization, reconstruction in northeastern Syria is very much in our interest because that will help keep ISIS from returning. I think one reason that 
we're not good at de-radicalization is that it really needs to be done by the communities uh, themselves in northeastern Syria. Those communities are smashed to bits. Uh, and if there isn't some stability in reconstruction, I don't think they'll be able to take people back and sort of help them with the reintegration de-radicalization process. And they're the ones uh, who really need to do it with the help of some outside organizations. Third, um, I do think we need to put pressure on our allies um, in the SDF uh, who were great sort of fighting partners for us to now transition to be great sort of governing partners, not for us, but for the local communities there. Um, there are reports of Kurdish-Arab tension that we received. Um, there are, I think, um, some things that we need the SDF to do to really sever and disavow its links to the PKK, for example, to be inclusive in the way they govern um, so that you don't have discontent among local populations that ISIS can capitalize on. I'm just going to add a few additional things to what uh, Mike said. So one consistent success across the previous administration and this administration is that the international coalition to defeat ISIS would not, was not just about U.S. military pressure and, and activities by the SDF, but all these other lines of effort as well, counter-terror financing, working on foreign fighters, shoring up information sharing um, in intelligence and law enforcement channels across Europe, looking at the borders where ISIS fighters come and cross and, and return these issues, and also combating ISIS ideology, use of the internet and media operations. So these are other, in, in addition to just looking at the Syria file, if we're talking about ensuring that ISIS is not able to reconstitute, we need to keep up pressure through the coalition that already exists on all of these other lines of effort as well. And finally, it goes without saying that the, one of the reasons that ISIS was able to move so fast across Syria is because it's a weak, ungoverned area without a legitimate government in Damascus. So again, this goes back to if the underlying causes of the conflict in Syria are not at some point addressed and resolved, ISIS will always have a pool of recruits in Syria. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I would note that um, when there is a, a tragedy which occurs where, uh, in a different theater altogether, which is uh, with regards to the Gaza Strip, for instance, where, where perhaps there's a, 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 uh, an attack that leads to a civilian uh, death or deaths, uh, that that makes world news, uh, that there are visual images of this, and yet Assad is continuing to use chemical weapons to attack his own people in large numbers, this goes on and on and on. According to your report, it has not ceased. It's, it, it's uh, perhaps even greater than it has been in the past. What do we need to do to, to stop the chemical attacks, the weapons of mass destruction which are being uh, applied to the, to the people of that country? Well, thank you, Senator. In, in a way, yes, the chemical attacks are alarming in part, not just because of the people they kill, but because they break the international taboo, which now has been thoroughly trodden on in Syria against the use of chemical weapons in warfare. But I, I think we have to um, acknowledge that sort of um, it's not just the chemical weapons attacks. It's the barrel bombing. It's the deliberate targeting of civilians, hospitals, schools, and so forth. Um, and I think that it's important that the Assad regime, Russia, which is complicit in this as well, um, pay a price for what it's doing. Um, the United States, I think, under President Trump has undertaken a couple of strikes in response to chemical weapons. I think that's good, frankly. I think that practicing deterrence is necessary, but it's probably not enough at the end of the day. I think that exposing especially the complicity of um, other actors like Russia in these war crimes is important, and we haven't done enough of that. Um, and then ensuring that we have sanctions and other measures in place that can exact a price um, on these parties for what they've done is important as well. And then 
as we look to the future, there will need to be some process of accountability for what has happened. I will say I think it's also important to keep that deterrence in place. There has to be at least that concern in the back of the minds of the Assad regime forces that we may be willing with our international partners to strike again um, should they target civilians en masse. Thank you. My time is actually up. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Um, Mr. Rule, uh, maybe wanted you to comment on something that Mr. Singh uh, talked about, which is the effort to turn the SDP into political partners as well as military partners. It was striking to me that for um, large periods of this conflict, while we had thousands of American soldiers on the ground, uh, oftentimes we had one single State Department official on the ground, and we have had officials from start forward uh, there, but they were withdrawn recently and there's no plans to send them back. Um, if we've learned anything over the course of the last 10 years, we have learned that our military, however capable fighters they are, are not particularly good at achieving political reconciliation in the Middle East. And so how, um, how do we resource our personnel in Syria to make sure that we are effectuating the kind of political cooperation that we need? I, I just think we have to come to the conclusion that 20-year-olds soldiers are not likely going to be the ones to be able to um, to figure these difficult uh, questions out. We've got to get some experienced diplomats on the ground. Thank you, Senator. Um, you will be pleased to know that the Syria study group agrees with you. There's an entire section on this exact issue. Uh, we, we attempted to shed light very much on the need for more and increased civilian engagement in the areas where our military is working with the SDF. We highlight specific issues with governance. The SDF needs to do better at allowing um, NGOs to, to operate freely, to allow independent media to conduct uh, whatever oversight and reporting and journalism it wants to. There are a lot of issues here. And uh, one, one issue that I thought was great that we discovered in, in our consultations and briefings is that our U.S. military actually wants increased civilian engagement in northeastern Syria. So they would be happy to have more diplomats and, and more development practitioners and, and civilian experts working with them. Some elements of Start Forward have already returned. For sure, this platform needs to be expanded. The more civilians we can get in there, the better. Two things that can happen right now. One is those civilians working on governance issues in northeastern Syria are under a stabilization set of activities, not the humanitarian activities. We need to turn our stabilization assistance back on, both for a resource reasons and also from a leadership perspective. And number two, there's a security issue here. So we need to look at flexible ways in which our diplomats can work and, and our and our development experts can work safely and security with with the with our military on the ground. I appreciate the focus of the report on that question. Um, Mr. Singh, two Iran focused questions for you. Uh, one, um, what are the what are the outcomes measurements we should be looking at as we uh, foresee the role that Iran would play in a politically settled Syria, right? What, what, obviously, we know we can't expel their influence. Uh, so what do we look to uh, as to decide whether they have uh, too much impact in input versus uh, right-sized impact in input? And two, um, I've heard some concerns that we are uh, perhaps too hyper-focused on Al-Tamf when thinking about preventing this land bridge uh, through Syria, um, the, the expectation that by just controlling this 
you know, one outpost, we're going to be able to stop the Iranians from moving people and goods through the country does seem to be a little far-fetched. Uh, and so uh, speak to that concern as well. So on the second point, Senator, um, I guess all I can tell you is that I think U.S. officials and other officials around the region consider the U.S. presence at Atomf to be of strategic importance. I think not just for blocking the land bridge, although it does play that role to some extent, um, but also just for maintaining a kind of uh, presence in that sort of swath uh, of Syria, which might otherwise be, be one where uh, our adversaries would be able to do more than they're doing now. Um, I, I would, I guess, encourage the committee to, to get a fuller briefing on that from U.S. officials who could go into more detail on it. Um, on the question of what are the right metrics for Iran, I, I think it's a tough question. Iran has had influence in Assad, Syria for a very long time, uh, and I think realistically they're going to maintain that influence. Um, I think it is right, though, to think that we, we certainly don't want to see um, Syria dominated by uh, Iranian forces or Iranian proxy forces. You've seen a, a real uptick, um, as far as I can tell from the reports I've seen, in, say, Hezbollah's presence there, in the creation of new Iranian-backed militias in Syria. And so to insist that if, you know, as part of some political settlement, foreign forces are required to leave, that those be included as foreign forces, I think, is entirely appropriate. In the near term, um, why, one of the reasons we focus on the Israeli action is I think that at least we don't want to see Iran be able to turn Syria into sort of a forward military operating base, you know, to turn the Syrian-Israeli uh, border uh, into the kind of militarized border that the Israeli-Lebanese border is, for example, to forward place missiles or missile factories uh, in Syria. Um, it's a, that's a more modest goal, but that's why we argue that it has to be approached in phases. Stop it from getting much worse, and then as part of the political settlement, try to ensure that those forces they put there are forced to leave. Thank you, Mr. Singh. Senator Shaheen. Um, I want to go back, I think, Mr. Rule, to your comment. I think you said that some of the start forward team folks are beginning to move back into northeastern Syria. So does the study group have an accurate, what you believe is an accurate understanding of the current status of our forces and the international forces in Northeast Syria and the stabilization funds in that area? And if so, can you describe what that is? We will do our best. As we understand it, there there have been some security arrangements agreed upon between the Department of Defense and the, and the Department of State to allow some elements of the start forward team to go back into Syria for specific periods of time to do civilian engagement. The issue going forward in expanding that platform very much relies on security and also availability of funding to do the projects that we would, that would make sense to do if we're going to have a civilian element of engagement. And when you say the funding, is that the stabilization funds that Congress has already appropriated? Yes. So Congress has appropriated, as, as you very well know. And the administration is not spent. Correct. And it's put a hold on. Correct. Correct. $200 million, yes. Mm -hmm. And when that $200 million was put on hold, there was an aggressive diplomatic effort to encourage other governments to provide funding for, stabiliz for stabilization activities. Two, three governments that did that were the government of Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. the government of the United Arab Emirates, and the German government. A lot of that money will run out very soon. 
So one of the things that I'm struck by in the report is that it says, and I'm quoting here, throughout the serious study group's briefings and interviews, no one argued that withdrawing U.S. troops would make ISIS less likely to regroup or Iran less likely to entrench itself. That's a quote. So I just want to put myself on record again as saying I'm one of those people who believes we need to leave the footprint that we have of United States troops in northeast Syria, that we need to provide the stabilization funds, that that is an, an important step for us to reassure all of those people who are with us in this fight that we are committed. And as the study group points out, our leaving doesn't help with ISIS regrouping or Iran's presence there or Russia's presence there. It makes it more likely that we are going to totally cede influence in Syria um, to those actors who we have committed to try and get out of the area. So that's a convoluted way of saying I, I don't understand the current administration policy at all. And so I very much appreciate what the recommendations that you have in the report. And one of those on page 48 is about Turkey and suggesting that one of the things that we could do, because Turkey is putting pressure on northeast Syria on that border, as you all pointed out, um, that one of the things that we could do is to help encourage um, Turkey, who has legitimate issues with the PKK in Turkey that have been historic, but they had been working on those issues, and to encourage them to continue those peace efforts to try and provide for some reconciliation there. And I've actually had some conversations with um, Turkish leaders that has suggested they might be open to that. Can you tell me if we have tried to do any of that? And where, who might take the lead in trying to um, facilitate some of those peace talks or open, reopening those talks? So I can speak to that, Senator Shaheen. I, I want to say one thing about your point about the stabilization funding and the military presence before I do, though, and that's to say I, I sympathize with the administration's desire to promote burden sharing, and I, and I think many people do. I'm sure many people on this committee do. I think, though, the question is, how do you successfully do that? And I think the way you successfully do that um, is by providing some basic assurance to allies about some minimal level of U.S. commitment to being there. Right. And I think being there militarily, most importantly. And I think that helps then, in their domestic debates, our allies make the case that we, too, should contribute to this. I think that's a harder case for them to make when they can't be sure if we're going to be there tomorrow. Um, that's, that's just a fact. I think you have to pair leadership with the request for burden sharing. On I the agree. Turkey, on the Turkey PKK talks, um, I think a lot of it boils down to the politics inside Turkey, uh, and where, for example, President Erdogan sees sort of his best kind of advantage in terms of the political forces, um, within Turkey. Um, and, and exactly where that would stand right now, I don't have a good answer to, but we do have people, you know, like Ambassador Satterfield in Ankara, like Jim Jeffrey, our Syria envoy, um, like the folks at UCOM who are very much following this issue, I think, on top of this issue and, are, uh, and have the relationships and the expertise um, uh, to, uh, 
uh, follow up on it. And, and I have confidence, frankly, in Ambassador Jeffrey, Ambassador Satterfield, and our folks on the ground that they agree with this and, and will be pushing this as well. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane, um, you're going to be the last questioner today. And uh, uh, following your questions, we will uh, uh, dismiss so that we can go vote. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And I was going to ask questions about Turkey, and I appreciate Senator Shaheen doing it. Let me just ask a question about one topic. The, the, you, you, meant, you used the phrase dog's breakfast group of groups in Idlib, and I wanted to come to that. So we are, work primarily with the SDF, which the U.S. estimates is sort of split between Kurds and uh, Arabs and Assyrians, um, and they have been very good partners for us. There's also anti-Assad elements that are not partners of us, ISIS and al-Qaeda. Um, and so they're anti-Assad, but we've been battling them because of their terrorist connections. What is your level of concern about the funding of those groups by Gulf state allies of ours? Is, is foreign funding of the terrorist groups in Syria still a problem? Uh, and there's not recommendations about how we deal with foreign funders of terrorism in Syria, but should we be concerned about that or is that no longer a concern? Thank you for that question. We should always be concerned about foreign funding for terrorist actors. Uh, as you know, the SDF and those partners are in northeastern Syria. Right. They are not present in Idlib province. Right. Um, and, and it is clear that both Harasadin and HDS, Hayrat Tahrir Sham, both present in Idlib process. One is more focused uh, on uh, galvanizing anti-Assad support. The other one sees the lack of, of a legitimate government in Idlib as, as a uh, viable or um, fertile ground for external plotting, mm -hmm. right? External attacks both against the United States and our allies and partners. And clearly that threat is of such a concern to the U.S. government that Central Command has announced in the past several months two separate strikes on al-Qaeda and Syria leadership. So we know that they're still there, and if they are as active um, enough for CENTCOM to continue taking military strikes against them when it's possible, then they're still receiving foreign funding. And this, as, my, as I understand it, is, is a constant area of engagement between U.S. officials and, and all partners in the region. And it's not necessarily foreign government funded. And a lot of this is about foreign governments tightening up their own domestic laws and, and learning the technical expertise to, to look at that, those monetary transfers and put technical If, if the funding is not coming from foreign governments, but instead from I individuals or groups within other nations, what, what, what is the sources, what are the nations that we have to be most concerned about and lean on them to crack down on foreign funding of terrorist groups in Syria? So I'll, I'll say, Senator, my, my impression that is, is that a lot of these groups, I'm sure there are foreign funding streams. I frankly don't have a lot of specific information on that to share with you. My impression, though, is that both ISIS and these groups in Idlib, because they have managed to take and hold territory. I mean, you know, Idlib is effectively controlled by HTS, um, and to a lesser extent, you've got Haras Adin and groups like that, that that puts a lot of resources at their disposal, um, that, you know, so they are less dependent on those outside sources of funding. I understand that. Yeah. Can, can you, in your consultation in writing this report, did you dig into the issue of to what extent these terrorist groups that are counter to the interests of the United States 
receive foreign funding? Was that something we, that you looked at or consulted? We did more for now? ISIS than we did for those groups in Idlib. And so I would, I would say that for the groups in Idlib, the extent to which they re are re currently receiving foreign funding, uh, I, don't, I just can't speak to that in, in any great detail. And then how about ISIS? But ISIS, I mean, our impression is that they're not very dependent at all on foreign funding. That basically by taking all that territory, robbing banks, you know, extorting citizens right. and so forth, they built up a financial kind of, you know, cash that they still, to some extent, have access to today, amazingly enough. Mm -hmm. And so this is a concern that they not only have those people inside prisons and elsewhere that could serve as the new core of a, of a new ISIS, That's essentially, fine. but they have the money as well. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Thanks to our witnesses for providing us with the benefit of your testimony and responses and for this uh, uh, extraordinary uh, study group report that you provided to each of us. Uh, and uh, appreciate the work that's gone into it and the effort that you all have made over such an extended period of time and to your entire team for the, uh, the work that has been performed. It is of uh, great service to this committee and, uh, and hopefully to other members of the Senate, uh, to our Foreign Relations Committee in total, uh, but also to the administration. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. And so with thanks of the committee, the hearing is now adjourned. Thank you so much.